All right, Happy New Year. Let's pray that this year is better than the last. But let's pray also that we grow in holiness and godliness this year. That's God's goal, isn't it? That's the spirit of God's goal, is to make you holy. And uh, to make you usable in his hands to serve him on this earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this new year. We know, Lord, every year you give us as a gift. Every day you give us as a gift. And, Lord, we want to receive that gift with gratitude. We want to receive it in a way where we know, Lord, our life is not our own. You own us, Lord. You bought us with the, the precious price of the blood of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that every day we would think of that, knowing that what we think in our mind, how we act, what we do, is all reflective of who you are and the message that we are supposed to be living by. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that our words would match our life and that the Spirit of God this year would sanctify us and grow us in the image of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that our life would be characterized by obedience to Christ. For we know, Lord, that is a chief characteristic of a real Christian. And, Lord, we know that obedience is not something that we must do. It is something that we want to do because we love you. And I pray, Lord, that would be a reality, something that can be seen uh, in our own lives this coming year, starting with today. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at the Lord in the wilderness. We saw that the herald was in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And now we're going to see the Lord in the wilderness, in particular, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Now you may think, well, you read the scripture very quickly and let's just look at the passages in chapter 1, verse number 9 through 11, and it says this. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And verse 11, And a voice came out of hev the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now, what is that all saying there to us this morning? And how does it have any kind of practical connection to our lives? Well, let me just remind you that the Gospel of Mark is definitely a Gospel that presents the redemptive activity of God, which is given to provide salvation for His people. And so it is about good news. It is about the motif of the wilderness in the prologue where John is crying in the wilderness to make straight the paths to prepare the hearts to receive the one who's going to be proclaimed as the Lamb of God, the Messiah. And then, 
the fact that John the Baptist is going to baptize Jesus Christ. So that's where we are at this morning. We're seeing the Lord coming into the wilderness, not going into the city, not going where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of movement, but going into the wilderness. So now we come and we see that John's voice was the voice of the restoration of the voice of prophecy. That is, God is speaking through a prophet again after not a peep for 400 years. The most radical thing about John in the wilderness, as I mentioned last week, is what he did. He called Israel into the wilderness to be baptized. In the Old Testament times, there was proselyte baptism for Gentiles if they want to be connected to the nation of Israel and be baptized into a covenant relationship with God. They were allowed to do that, but they had to be baptized into Judaism. They did this because they were considered unclean, and this is a way of a cleansing ceremony. But there was no baptism for the Jew. So this cleansing ritual was given in order for the members who wanted to be part of the covenant community of Israel to be cleansed. So here comes John, who instead of calling Gentiles to be baptized, he does a very radical and unheard of thing. He calls Jews to partake in the proselyte ritual of cleansing. John is called in his preparatory mission to call the whole nation of Israel to be subject to the, this baptism. Now, this was an incredible slap in the face to Israel because they thought they were children of Abraham. They didn't need to be cleansed. They thought they were already part of the covenant family, and they were in because of their birth, because of their being born into the nation of Israel. So his message to them is repent to have your sins forgiven, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that message was so urgent from John the Baptist that he, in the Gospel of Matthew, in several places, he gives two strong, strong uh, analogies saying, listen, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And of course, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, meaning that Israel was not bearing good fruit. They were ready to be cut down and be annihilated. And then he also said that, uh, gave another analogy, and he says the winning, the winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor, and he will gather his weed into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, and meaning that uh, Israel was considered to be chaff because they were living in hypocrisy. They were living in religious coldness. They did, didn't have a heart for God. So this is a crisis moment of separation between wheat and the chaff. The reason why is because Messiah is about to break through. The Messiah is about to appear on the scene and he is saying to the nation of Israel, you guys are not ready. You, Israel, are as unclean as the 
you are as unclean as the Gentiles, and you need to be cleansed, and you need to be prepared for the coming Messiah. And so that's what the Gospel of John says to us. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, what does he say? He says to the people there, he says to the nation of Israel, he says, listen, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he points him out. He points him out that this is the Lamb of God. This is the one who will take away the sin. Now a very significant thing takes place by John, and that is the baptism of Jesus. Now this is a very unusual thing that's happening here in Scripture. Because along with the baptism is the anointing ministry of the Holy Spirit upon the life of Jesus. So when Jesus steps on the scene, this is the beginning of his earthly ministry. Jesus is 30 years old. He hasn't done any ministry yet. For, so for 30 years, from his being an infant, growing up through young manhood, to now being an adult... He is now ready to take on the ministry. Now, if you look in verse number 9 of Mark chapter 1, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Jesus lived in Nazareth. He grew up there. And if you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah, because I want to mention something, that when Jesus steps onto the scene to begin his earthly ministry is actually a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said some 700 years before. If you notice in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1 through 3, notice the language there in that passage. It says, the Spirit of the Lord, in verse number 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a, garden, a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. So here is the prophet prophesying of the day that the Lord would anoint His servant to proclaim the good news. Now we know that servant is Jesus Christ. That's who He was prophesying in that passage. Now, if you notice again in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 1, that He uses His favorite word again to keep the narrative moving. And He says in verse number 10, immediately... Coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And the voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So Jesus, the offices of prophet, 
priest and king were those associated with the anointing in Israel. Anybody who would be a priest, not all the time this would happen, but they would be have oil poured on, on them and anointed and separated unto God as holy in the service of God and to do his particular work, whether that work would be a prophet, whether that work would be that of a priest going before the Lord and offering sacrifices and doing priestly duties, or that of a king who would be anointed by God to rule over a nation. Right? The, all those were associated with the anointing of God. Now in the New Testament... Jesus Christ is portrayed as fulfilling three offices of prophet, priest, and king. He is therefore supremely God's anointed one. And that word anointed, of course, is the word Messiah, because Messiah is actually the term for anointed one, derived directly from the Hebrew word for anointed, and that would be Messiah. And then Christ is the same title derived from the Greek word for anointee. So see, Jesus Christ, again, is uh, Christ in the New Testament means that he is Messiah. He is the one who is anointed. He is the one who has been chosen by God for the ministry, of course, of saving his people. And so this Christ the official title given to Jesus in the New Testament describes the job to be the anointed Savior. And of course, the word does come from the Greek Christos, uh, a translation of the Hebrew Messiah. Both terms come from verbs meaning to anoint with sacred oil. And hence, as titles, they mean anointed one, and these names for Jesus express the idea that God anointed him again to save his people. So in his baptism, he was anointed for ministry. In that baptism, you see that there is an outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit comes down upon him. And then there is this voice that God speaks audibly not many times does this happen in Scripture. So this is a very unique event. Not, not only do we hear a herald in the wilderness, God not speaking through a prophet for 400 years, but now the people hear the very voice of God coming out of heaven. And what does he say? He gives the approval for his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to begin his ministry. So John himself denied being the anointed one, even though people thought he was, and then instead identifies Jesus the Christ as, of course, the anointed one. So the true anointing of Messiah is spiritual. That, it is, that is, it is done by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth was, in, was indeed the anointed one, the Messiah of the Old Testament prophets. So it was evident through several things. The Spirit of God coming down as a dove descending upon him in Mark chapter 1, verse number 10. That's the anointing of the Spirit. And by the miracles that follow. And of course, all the things mentioned in the prophecy of Isaiah are there 
to show us that this anointed one, this Christ, is going to do incredible things like no man has ever done ever in all of human history. In fact, Jesus' disciples, when they began to follow him, they, want, they were looking for the Messiah, and they went back and told the other disciples, we have found the Messiah. We have found the anointed one. The demons, you find Jesus Christ stepping on the scene, and also the demons are proclaiming the Holy One. That's the anointed one, right, of God. It's even coming from the demonic world. And then the 12 disciples remain loyal to Jesus, saying, like in Matthew 16, we believe you are the Holy One of God. That's another way of saying the Anointed One of God, the One chosen of God, the Messiah of God, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, that is the important, incredible statements that were referred to about Jesus Christ. Now, if your memory serves you correctly, this is the very passage, the one from Isaiah, Jesus turned to when he stood up in the synagogue and read the scripture. Do you remember that time? Well, let's look at it in Luke chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, because Jesus says something very incredible here. It's a radical thing that he does here. In Luke chapter 4, notice verse number 17. It says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. It was his turn to read that day. And he took the book of the prophet Isaiah. Well, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Look, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, who Isaiah was talking about, I'm he. I'm the one. Now, come on, this is his hometown, Nazareth. He's reading in the synagogue. Actually, I was there in the very place at least the synagogue built on top of the other synagogue but they're quite similar uh to say that and the town is a very small place right on the sea of galilee and it's like wow this is where he grew up you know it's uh and so he went into that synagogue and he read everything is stone back then it's very a cold type of atmosphere uh, and so you were sitting, if you sat down, you were sitting on stone, you were sitting on the floor. And so there would, there would be this, this uh, table up in front, and the, the big scrolls would be laid out on the table, and he would roll it to the very passage that he read. And when he read that, he said to them, of course, listen, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So that, see, that's a wow moment. See, Jesus just proclaimed he 
was and is the anointed one. Now, at Jesus' baptism is when the Spirit of God comes down to anoint Jesus and ordain him into earthly ministry and mission. It is the human Jesus who is anointed by the Holy Spirit to fulfill his mission as the servant Messiah. Now, something very interesting is going on or is surrounding the act of Jesus' baptism that I don't want you to miss. Now, it is not found recorded in Mark, but being that I'm not preaching through all the Gospels, I won't be able to get to it, so I want to kind of fill in where Mark doesn't speak of, because Mark is moving quickly through to get to the main messages in the life of Christ, where the other Gospels take a little bit more time. So go back to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, in verse number 13. What we see in this passage of Scripture, and of course surrounding it, is that John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, is really the way we should say it, all right? tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. And the reason why is because John realizes his unworthiness in the presence of the Lamb of God, in the presence of deity. And look what it says in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, And do you come to me? John John was like trying to get his mind around this. John was thinking this. You would be thinking that. I would be thinking that. That Jesus, uh, this ritual is for sinners, Jesus. Um, Not for the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. It doesn't apply to you. But Jesus, without in-depth explanation, actually no explanation at all. What does he say to him in the next passage? He says this in verse 15. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Now that statement right there is an incredible statement. It is necessary for John and Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this may be the most important text in the New Testament that points to the mission of Jesus. What that meant to the Jew is that is to obey every little thing in the law. That the law must be kept perfectly. That Jesus is not acting in his baptism for himself alone, but he is acting for his people. He's acting as a representative for his people. In other words, if his people are required to submit to the Ten Commandments, Jesus submits to the Ten Commandments. If his people are required to submit to the ritual of baptism, then Jesus will submit to the ritual 
of baptism on their behalf, and he does it so he would accomplish all righteousness. In other words, there is an attitude in the the humanity of Jesus of obedience that in his baptism was a crowning point of obedience. The question that comes to mind, of course, is why does Jesus need to be baptized? It is a sinner's ordinance. Jesus is no sinner and has no need of washing or of being represented in death or be represented in burial or any of those things. What Jesus is doing is taking the sinner's place so that he comes to the wilderness to be, in a sense, buried into, in, in the river Jordan. And Jesus then says to John, he says, for it, in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It was to Christ an act of obedience. And to look, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Obedience. He found, was found, being, found in, in the fashion of a man being obedient to every ordinance of God and therefore yielded himself to baptism. Now that means this, that Jesus living a perfect, obedient life was part of fulfilling all righteousness. It was part of redeeming his people. It was part of Filling in what the prophet said, the Lamb of God had to be perfect, unblemished. So, Jesus not only had to die for our sins, he had to live an obedient life for our righteousness. You got that? If Jesus did not live an obedient life, we could not be saved. If Jesus did not live an obedient life, you could not live an obedient life. Now that that connection comes out of his baptism. I mentioned in our Christmas Eve service that Jesus is the Savior by his perfect blamelessness and spotless life of complete obedience. We see that in Scripture that he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. That Christ was the only absolutely perfect person who ever lived. And if we compared Jesus to somebody we think has a perfect life, that we may hold in high admiration or high esteem, we will find very quickly and discover that There's no one perfect. Everyone has feet of clay. There's many flaws and weaknesses in all of us, is there not? Not so with Jesus. Jesus never had to confess sin. He never sinned in thought, word, or deed. It says in Scripture, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. There's that word righteousness connected with obedience. 
Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, meaning that Jesus must be perfectly obedient. Jesus never had to apologize to anyone for anything. He had no reason to. He always responded correctly. He never sought advice. Why? Because in him all wisdom and knowledge dwells in bodily form. Jesus never had to ask for prayers. And as I mentioned uh, the other night, that there in Gethsemane, the night before the cross, he asked the disciples to pray for him, right? No, he didn't. For the scripture says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. He says, listen, pray for yourselves. See, that's what they had to do. So theologians have grappled with this point of theology, and rightly so, that if God would die only for your sins, that would leave you guiltless. But it would not leave you righteous. You and I are made guiltless of sin by Jesus' death. You and I are made righteous by Jesus living a perfectly blameless, spotless, and righteous life of obedience. Both of those things must, must be there. So you understand that if I make a statement like that and the theology brings us to that place, Jesus is the only one who could save anyone. Because no one else qualifies. No man, no leader, no religious leader, no miracle worker, no philosopher, nobody at all could ever qualify to save anyone. Because no one ever lived a perfect life. And no one, no one ever died for unrighteous, ungodly, unholy people, except Jesus Christ. So the active obedience of Jesus makes us right with God. And active obedience has to do with his whole life. He qualifies to be Savior. He qualifies to be the Lamb without blemish. He qualifies for you and I to sing about who he is. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, it says in Revelation. See, so through his obedience, Jesus obeys the law perfectly and receives the blessing. Now, look again at Mark chapter 1 and verse number 11. It says, immediately coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. That's his being anointed to ministry as the Messiah prophesied by Isaiah. And then verse 11, and a voice came out of heaven, and what does the Father say about Jesus? He says, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. When is God well pleased? From birth to 30 years old, Jesus was perfectly obedient. And now we come to John the Baptist and we see him baptizing Jesus. And the Father is pleased. Why is the Father pleased? Because Jesus is perfectly obedient to the Father's will. And part of the Father's will, of course, would be for him to be baptized. Of course, Jesus, from the time of his entrance into this world as a baby, 
And through his human development, as the Gospel of Luke records, where it says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, that Jesus was never out of the watchful eye of the Father. And what the Father saw right up to his baptism was complete obedience. And so, what does the Father say? He says... This, this is my beloved son whom I well please. And then, of course, the other gospels say, add, hear him. Follow him. Listen to what he has to say. He is the one. So Jesus' obedience did not nail him to the tree as a curse. If not, then the demarcation mark as to what Jesus was doing on the cross to whom he was dying becomes clear that he was not dying because he was in any way disobedient he was dying for our disobedience he was dying for our sins Galatians uh, chapter 3 grapples with this because we see that we're leading to this double imputation that the the theologians call it which is which is quite important for you and I for it says in in Galatians chapter 3 for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse for it is written curses everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to perform them so anybody who cannot keep the law is already under the curse of God but what does it say In verse 12 of Galatians chapter 3, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So Jesus receives the curse of the law, not for himself, but for us sinners. He was the perfect substitute lamb who was sacrificed for the sin of his people. As it says in Peter, Christ also died for sins, the just for the unjust, right? So Jesus was always just, always obedient, always pleasing to the Lord. And of course, that one act and maybe that final earthly act of obedience when Jesus submitted himself to death was all part of saving us. So in other words, Jesus' life of obedience is just as necessary for our salvation as his atonement for our sins on the cross. Both are significant. Both are important. Both are important for you and I to grab and grasp in our mind theologically. And why is that? Because my sin to him, his righteousness to me. My sin to him, Christ's righteousness transferred to our account, believer's account, and our sin not only transferred to the cross, but canceled at the cross. See, in other words, someone had to keep the law perfectly 
you and I could have never done it. Someone had to pay the debt completely. You and I could have not done that. Christ has done that. So he's the only one who could save. He's the only one who could save. Now, what does that mean practically for us? That if Christ transfers your sin and cancels it in the cross and on the cross, and he takes his righteousness and puts it upon our account, and that's double double imputation. One's imputed to Christ, another imputed to us. What does it mean for us? You know what it means? That if Christ has imputed to us his righteousness, one of the chief characteristics of believers is what? You know what it is? Obedience. It's obedience. Why? Because it's been given to us. It's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. So how do we fulfill the law? By yielding to the Holy Spirit, by cooperating with His work in our lives. It's all over Scripture that the Holy Spirit enables us to experience the righteousness of the law in daily life because Christ already kept it for us perfectly. Now, this does not mean that we live sinlessly perfect lives. But it does mean that Christ lives out His life through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, so for someone to be a Christian and not be obedient to anything the Lord has said is contrary to what Jesus did and accomplished and what the Spirit of God does for you and I. So how does obedience look in your life? What are you doing right now that if you claim to be a Christian that you should not be doing and otherwise be obedient? What is that? How does obedience look for you this year? The Spirit comes to anoint Jesus as his, as, at his baptism for his mission. Along with his anointing is the Father's words of pleasure and approval for his obedience. A very interesting passage of Scripture comes up in um, a translation in the context of obedience. And if you just take your Bibles, turn to 1 John for a minute. John grapples with this whole thing about real salvation and obedience through his, the whole of his epistles. In fact, uh, Christian obedience is the mark of new birth in Christ. When we believe the gospel, And become genuine Christians, the Holy Spirit teaches us and enables us us to be obedient. Look, for example, well, let's go up to 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 6. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood... Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and with blood, is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit 
is truth. Now, the reason why I'm reading that passage of Scripture is because some have, have concluded that what he is saying in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by the shedding of blood on the cross. Now, I think that's what he is, what's John is getting at there in that section of Scripture. So that means that Jesus submitting himself in baptism was his act of obedience where the Father proclaims his pleasure in him, where when we obey God, then God is pleased with us when we do acts of obedience. Now, again, look at 1 John chapter 2, verse number 3. Where it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And notice what it says, if we keep his what? Commandments. Verse number 4 of 1 John chapter 2. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Verse 5, and whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him, in verse number 6, and notice what it says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So we see that one who comes to Christ and abides in Christ and now has been having had their sins canceled in Christ on the cross and Christ's righteousness to, her, to their account, something goes on very specifically, and that is this, that Jesus Christ is the righteous one, and so therefore those who follow him must walk in a manner as he walked. And that is in a righteous manner, in an obedient manner. That's what characterizes a Christian. In fact, again, look at chapter 2, verse number 29. It says, if you, this is First John chapter 2, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, there's that word again, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born in him. So see, this transfer of the righteousness of Christ to our account is very practical for us. It is theologically practical that we are made perfectly righteous before God right now in heaven on our account. But practically, the Spirit of God is producing in us a righteousness that has been given to us by Christ himself through us receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, and then the Spirit of God indwelling us. So see, if you know that He is righteous, and do we know that? I just explained that He is. Then you know that everyone, that means those who are born again, also who practice righteousness is born of Him. So here is the characteristic blaring Mark of the new birth, that, that I am growing in righteousness, not perfection, in righteousness. In fact, if you look at chapter 3, and if you notice verse number 1 through 3 of 1 John, it says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, such as we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it 
has not appeared as what we will be, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Then look at verse number three. And everyone, who's everyone? Everyone born again, who has this hope. What hope do we have? We will see Jesus Christ, right? In all his holiness and glory and perfection. That's our hope. That is the promise of God that we have. Now, with that hope laid before us, and with the understanding we have so far, verse number 3 says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So you see, believers who possess this hope purify themselves daily from sin and moral corruption. Now, self-purification does not mean that Christians are cleansed by their own efforts. Although they must be willing to repent of known sin. Rather, it means the Holy Spirit convicts the believers of the need of moral cleansing, the need of putting sin to death and then accomplishes that cleansing through what is called progressive sanctification or progressive holiness or continuing, God continuing to set you apart to bear his image in this world while we're still here. So it begins at the time of one's salvation and progresses until the receipt of a glorified body at Christ's return for his church is given to us. Then we'll be perfect. Then we'll be glorified. So if one claims to be born again and but practices a lifestyle of habitual sin or unrighteousness, he or she is willingly disobeying. They're willingly disobeying Christ's command. And in doing so, they put their salvation in a questionable realm. In other words, someone who's claiming to know Christ and does not want to obey Christ out of gratitude and love for what Christ has done for them, there's a disconnect that is very troubling. You'll see that? And that's very important for our day today. Young people, you know, the world has many temptations out there. They say, you know, all the standards, what used to be right is now wrong. It's all twisted and upside down. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you get married. It doesn't, you don't have to get married anymore. You just live with the person. Where God's command is that he commands that the marriage bed is only, only honorable in marriage. That a fornicator and an adulterer will be judged by God. See, God doesn't mince with words. He's direct. That's one passage. And yet today, nah, it's no big deal. Do what you want. I mean, you know, feel, you know, feel what you want to do. You know, if you want to do that, go do it. You know, don't, don't worry about it. No, a Christian doesn't live like that. You know why? They live every day before the eyes of God. And one of the things that pleases God is obedience because God is seeing the character of his own son come through his own children. And that pleases him. And you think that you're losing out? By being obedient to the Lord? No, you're gaining. You want to know what real joy and happiness? See, the, see, sometimes people think, well, I want to come to the church because I want to get happy in church and go out there, there into the world. You know what? That's not Christianity. That's psychology. 
Christianity is when you come to the church, you learn the word of God. You, you deal with your own heart and your life and your sin and you every day bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to live in a pleasing and a holy manner to you because it matters to you. And you know what? Because I'm your ch- child, it matters to me. And I know that if I live there, that's where the joy comes from. That's where real happiness comes from. That's where real fulfillment comes from. That's where real just being relaxed in life comes from, that I trust God because God is not a liar. God tells us the truth, and the truth sometimes is hard to take. See, and Satan wants to lie to you and saying that God's trying to hold out on you. He's trying to, you know, cram your style. Well, you know what? That is the biggest lie from the pit of hell. That I tell you, since I've been a Christian, since 1977, before I was a Christian, I tried it all. And I was empty as empty could be until I came to Christ. And Christ keeps filling me, keeps giving me reasons to be grateful and to thank him for what he has done, and to know this life is so, so short. If I want to live it for myself, then I may be the person who says, hey, I have all this money. I can build more barns and fill those barns, and Jesus may say to you, today your soul is required of me, when you least expect it. And then what regret would come then to somebody who confesses to believe in Christ but has not, never lived to back up those words. See, I say to you that, see, Jesus Christ's baptism is significant because Jesus established a standard of purity and righteousness. And Jesus is always pure from sin in his character and conduct. And every one baptized in the Holy Spirit, everyone who is a real child of God, knows that Jesus is the example and standard every believer ought to imitate. So Jesus is obedient if we're in his family and he's our Lord, we become children of obedience. That's the characteristic mark. So if you want to go on living the way you want to live, if you want to go living in your own sin and your own ideas of what is right and wrong apart from God's, then you'll pay the price. I would say that this year, that you're going to rethink what you're doing. And you're going to say, from this day forward, I want to live in a way that I know pleases Christ. Because if I'm claiming to be his children, and if my sins were canceled in Christ on the cross, and his righteousness was transferred to my account, I must be different. Not because I necessarily choose to be different, but because the Holy Spirit indwells me to sanctify me and make me like Christ until 
I'm in his presence where I'll be perfect and you'll be perfect too. So see, as I fix my eyes on Jesus, I look at my life and I want my life to be more pure and righteous than it was yesterday. And so that means that what I'm looking at, what I'm thinking about, what I'm watching, where I'm going, who I'm hanging out with, who's influencing me, is all going to be evaluated. And if it turns out it doesn't please God, it's going on the garbage heap. That's what we ought to do as believers. Why? Because our main goal every day is to please Christ. And you know what? Don't go through your day saying that I don't know how to do that. Because if you've been a believer for a while, you know how to do it. So don't deceive yourself. Don't let anybody deceive you. Just live for Christ. And learn how to please him. And so the characteristic mark of a believer is obedience. I pray for myself and you that this year would be a year that we would gratefully desire to obey Christ. Especially in areas we have not. And put those sins down and to death and get up and live as a soldier in this dark, dangerous, passing away world that has no answers at all whatsoever. It's amazing to me that when I go to a funeral, you see people sitting in front of you, and they have no idea about death. They have no clue where to put it. They have no answers. And the answers that they give is so absolutely ridiculous that it's not even worth thinking about. And then you present to them Jesus Christ, who's the resurrection and the life, who's defeated death and Satan, who, if you come to him, will give you life. And they've never heard that before. You know why? Because the world is not teaching those things. They're not going to hear it from the world. They're not going to hear it from uh, the schools that we have. There's, they're not going to hear it from almost any place you cannot find truth. And you know what? It's a shame also that you can't even find truth in the church. If the church is supposed to be the pillar and support of truth, it is your job as well as my job and the elder's job and the deacon's job to uphold that truth and not to give it away. And part of that is that if you believe the truth, live the truth. Live it. Don't just talk about it. Live it. And I think transformed lives could be the greatest testimony to someone who is lost in darkness and sin than anything else. Because then you'll have an opportunity to say, this is why I'm different. And then you share the gospel, right? So they both go together. You can't separate them. So I just pray that for myself and, and you this next coming year, that we would... Uh, we would live our life for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. And Lord, thank you for your obedience, perfect obedience, not for yourself, 
or for us. Thank you, Lord, that your life of obedience is partly how you save us along with your death on the cross for our sin. Thank you, Lord, that you have transferred our sin to the cross and canceled it. And you have transferred your righteousness to our account. Not only are we positionally righteous before God because we've come to Christ, but that positional righteousness is seen in our acts of spirit-led obedience every day of our lives. I pray, Lord, this year we would see significant advances in sanctification in our own personal lives and in the lives of people in our church and in the lives of people at school and in colleges and in marriages and, Lord, all the way down in all realms and all situations that, Lord, we would desire more deeply than anything else to want to please you on how we think and how we act and how we live. And I pray, Lord, and I know that will give you glory and that will cause you to be pleased with us. I pray and thank you, Lord, that our lives on this earth would be. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. New Year, just uh, 